Having, um, <clears throat> having been honored to officiate over uh, 150 weddings, actually I think I'm over 200 weddings now, I have some really wild wedding stories. Um, like the time, one of my phew, most shuddering but uh, favorites was the time that uh, I noticed the bridesmaid over here was locking her knees as we tell them not to do, and finally she began to kind of waver, and I grabbed the groom. It was on a very steep stage. In fact, the steps were marble at the place where I did this, and she just fell straight back right as the groom and I got underneath her, and we poof, caught the bridesmaid like that and just then set her down on the stage and went on with the wedding. The, um, uh, no, we made sure she was okay, but that was, that was harrowing. Then there was the time I had a bride who was just this very precious perky, just so excited. She was so cute. I mean, it was just precious. And the wedding was in this really uh, historic venue, but a little tiny, tiny place had about two million candles burning there. I, I don't know. There were so many candles inside this place, and it was just beautiful. And uh, at one point during the ceremony, I'm, I'm praying, and, uh, and I open my eyes and look as I'm talking to the Lord, and the bride, she's just, she is just so excited. She's just waving her head around, and she's just like this, and it was so cute until she flopped her veil back in her, and it went right into the candles and caught on fire. She didn't know it. I just kept praying, and I just grabbed her, and she came and just hugged me and gave a big hug, and I just grabbed, and I just did this and put the fire out and then gave her a pat and went on and finished it. Nobody saw anything because they were all praying, right? And then I forgot all about it. I mean, I just, we went on with the wedding, didn't think of it. One year later, the bride and groom were watching their wedding video for the first time. I'm eating dinner and I get a phone call in the middle of dinner. And when I pick up the phone, this is what immediately I hear, Pastor Wayne, I was on fire. <laughs> no one told me I was on fire. I could go on all day. Um, but as wild as my wonderful wedding stories are, I have never seen a wedding with as crazy a twist as this one. Open your Bible to Matthew, first book of your New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. We read about Joseph and his betrothal to Mary. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. As we say in your notes, you've got a bulletin. When you came and open it up, you'll see on the left side, this is a stage one problem. What Matthew describes is not like a modern engagement. Our old acquaintance, Arnold Fruchsenbaum, one of the best theologians of our time who has preached here before, Arnold uh, summarizes this situation really nicely. Look what he says. This is a specified legal status. The Jewish marriage process involves two stages. The first stage is the engagement or betrothal, which, according to, and he quotes here, Daryl Bach from Dallas Seminary, involved a formal witnessed agreement to marry and the giving of a bride price. Now back to Arnold. Legally, the woman was then called the wife of the husband-to-be, though the second stage of the marriage process, the ceremony itself, took place about a year later when the groom took her home. You got it? The couple was formally married through the ceremony, although the ceremony and the consummation took place sometime later. A guy named Raymond Brown wrote a really great old book called The Birth of the Messiah, and he points out that Mary and Joseph lived in Galilee, and because of that, there was no way to get around the stigma of her pregnancy during a stage one marriage. Don't misunderstand. In the Roman Empire at this time, there was absolutely no problem with an unplanned pregnancy. 
abortion was rampant. All any woman had to do, and it happened all throughout the empire, was just go get an abortion. And women, by the way, did it on their own. There was no permission needed. Uh, As Cicero, the Roman senator, lamented uh, a few years before this, he said, how multifaceted and aggressive are the abortioners' arts. But that was not the case in Jewish lands, and especially not up in Galilee where Mary and Joseph lived. Uh, Later Jewish commentary uh, shows that in parts of Judea, it was not totally unusual for the husband to be alone with his wife wife on at least one occasion in the interval between the two stages of marriage, but not in Galilee. In Galilee, that kind of activity was not tolerated. The woman had, had to go into her husband's home as a virgin. So Mary's pregnancy cannot be overlooked. Dr. Fruchtenbaum adds, look what he says. During this, the stage one of marriage, only death or divorce could sever the contract, and a girl whose groom died during this period of waiting was referred to as a widow. The marriage ceremony lasted for seven days, and only afterwards, oh my goodness, what a long party that would have been, only afterwards was the marriage consummated, right? So their whole world has been upended by Mary's supernatural stage one pregnancy. This is a stage one problem, and I mean that not just in terms of marriage, but in terms of import. It's a topic that's received a lot of study, uh, usually from the perspective of Mary and her extended family. But this Advent, we're going to examine all of the Christmas story from the perspective of Joseph. There's not much data about Joseph in the Bible, but what we have shows that God the Father chose a remarkable man to be the earthly stepfather to God the Son. As we say in our logo, Joseph really is the faithful father. Here's my goal in this series. My goal is to capture Joseph half as well as Vincenzo de Rossi did in this magnificent sculpture that stands in the Roman pantheon. It's still there to this day. Look, look, look at that face of Joseph in de Rossi, the, the, the strength, the, the righteousness, the steadiness that radiates from that face and his very, very strong hand on the shoulder of the young Jesus. Isn't that amazing? I've been there a number of times, and I've taken a few photos of that. None of mine are really very good. So this summer when Jared Coe, our our senior high pastor, was in Rome, I asked him to get me a photo, and he took this beautiful picture of it and uh, framed it for me, and it's very precious to me. This, this, This is what I hope you and I can do. We can learn from Joseph half as well as de Rossi seems to have done so and apply it to our own lives. All God's people said? All right, now. Before we learn more about Joseph and the couple's response to this stage one problem, let's get to know the bride. Let's find out about this bride whom Joseph has chosen. Much more is known about Mary, but for our purposes today, there are just two critical aspects we should note about the character of this bride. First, as we headline on the right side of our notes, Mary is a virgin. No author specifies for us the age of Mary at their betrothal. It's all speculation. What they do say is she is a virgin. Parthenos is the term used of her. Parthenos is a word that is never employed anywhere in all of Greek literature for a woman who has had sexual relations. It is exclusively and only used of a virgin, something at which their culture and ours laugh. Virginity is a source of ridicule in our culture today. In fact, it was much the same in the Roman Empire of Joseph and Mary's day. But like the Jews up in Galilee, Christians in America recognize the beauty and the import of male and female virginity before marriage. To the wider culture, that seems absurd. 
And yet, have you, have you looked closely at your culture? Have you watched them? Sometimes it seems to me that they're laughing too hard. You know, the, 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 the jokes are so forced. The laughter is so manic. The mockery fails to hide what they're trying to hide, which is the core cultural problem of our culture and the Roman culture, and that is the objectification of human beings. That is what lurks behind sexual promiscuity. Selfishness that sees other human beings as mere objects. This promiscuity dynamic, that's what inspired the Roman senator Cicero to give that fiery speech I referenced earlier about the evils of abortion. Cicero dared to say what no one else wanted to admit, that widespread abortion in Rome went hand in glove with a false view of human beings and sexuality. By the way, he also pointed out that sexual promiscuity and abortion were deeply wounding the Roman economy, as they are ours as well. Mary is the opposite of that cultural standard. She's the opposite of what Cicero blasted. She is a virgin. Secondly, she's also a receiver of grace. Uh, look at the passage here in Luke. Luke 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Charito'o is the root word that we render favored woman. Charito'o signifies someone, listen now, who has received the beneficent, undeserved favor of God. Now, this is really interesting. Charito'o is only used one other place in the whole Bible, Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 6, we translate the word uh, charito'o as grace. Uh, read with me, if you would, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, all together. To the praise of His glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, this is really important. In each situation, with Mary and Luke and with all Christians in Ephesians, charito'o is the unmerited favor of God. Now, now I, know what you're, I know what you're thinking. In response to that, you're asking in your, uh, in your Renaissance Italian sculptor voice, um, why is that so important? Uh, uh, thank you, Signore. Good question. Um, Mary was favored by God. She was not favoring God herself. She needed to be blessed by God's grace, just as every human being does. Once again, I think Fruchtenbaum is spot on. Look what he says. Miriam, he uses the Jewish rendering of the name, Miriam was being favored by God. She was receiving His grace. And there is nothing in the text that even remotely implies that she herself was sinless. The Greek, charito'o, was translated into Latin as gratia plena, Full of grace, a very unfortunate mistranslation. Roman Catholicism developed from this erroneous, the erroneous teaching that Miriam's fullness of grace allowed her to bestow grace upon others. This is not the biblical view. Miriam was a humble sinner, a truth she herself acknowledged when she said in Luke 1.47, My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Only a sinful person needs a Redeemer. So clearly, Miriam was not sinless. God did not act because of her, but on behalf of her, close quote. Well, if she's not a dispenser of grace, what does Mary have to offer? Oh, my goodness, folks. She teaches the most important thing for all of eternity, the most important thing. Mary shows Joseph. She shows all of us how to receive grace 
Look look at the passage that Arnold referenced, uh, Luke chapter 1. Mary said, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. That is a brilliant primer on how to respond to God's grace. Mary's life pointed to the Messiah, not to herself. Just start with the deepest layer, her humble condition right there. That doesn't mean Mary Mary thought poorly of herself. It means she sees herself accurately. One cannot respond properly to God's grace without this bedrock truth that we are in need. We are humble. No mere human is sinless. We are all separate from the holy God. And yet Mary teaches us to rejoice deep inside, to rejoice in spirit, because the God who should judge us has chosen also to rescue us. Messiah Jesus is God the Son. He is the Savior. That's why we can praise the greatness of the Lord. His advent on earth was a self-sacrificial rescue mission. Let's stop right now and respond to that truth. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for anyone studying with us, wherever they may be, that has never trusted Jesus alone for salvation. And I ask you to draw them to you. How are you talking? Oh, friend, listen. You, you and I deserve nothing. We are sinful. In fact, we, the only thing we deserve, the only just thing to give us is eternal separation from God. And yet God, He loves you so much that Jesus is fully God. Come to earth. The blessed, unmerited favor of God given to us. And he chose to die on the cross to pay the just price that had to be paid for your sin and mine so that anyone who believes in him could follow him because he did not stay dead. He conquered death and he resurrected When we celebrate Advent, we're not just celebrating His coming the first time. We're celebrating the fact that He is coming back to take us home. If you have never done so, trust Him right now as your Savior. Follow Mary. Receive grace. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Let me rejoice with you for a moment. Everybody else is still praying. Good. Father, I pray for all these who are believers in Jesus that we will receive grace upon grace. In Jesus' name, all God's people said? All right, let's get back to the crisis of Joseph's life. Now, look at the text. My my Bible translates Joseph's plan as secret. Uh, Other scripture translations render it privately, but neither is exactly right. Think about this now. As a righteous man, that's what he's called. That means he's a law keeper. Joseph could not marry an unfaithful woman. He couldn't. However, there was no legal way to keep such a thing secret. In in Deuteronomy 24, Moses' law required a bill of divorce that was drawn up and accepted by the elders of the village. There's no such thing as a secret divorce. By the way, that law was put in to protect women. 
That was a wonderful Hebrew law that was crafted to make sure that no woman could be abandoned or mistreated. Everything had to be public for their protection. All right, so then what does Matthew 1.19 mean when it says secretly put her away? The biggest clue we have is the added clause, not wanting to disgrace her publicly. You see, Numbers chapter 5 declared that adulterers could, didn't have to do this, but adulterers could be put on a public ordeal trial, all right? If they were found guilty in that ordeal trial, they then would be stoned to death. Uh, there were two ways stoning happened. One was throwing rocks. The other was throwing them off of a, a high cliff, like the one very high cliff that's in Nazareth. Uh, by the way, both kinds of stoning will figure in Jesus' later life and ministry. It could be that what Joseph was, was doing, what Matthew's telling us, is he was going to divorce Mary, but he was not going to disgrace her publicly. He was not going to expose her pregnancy and have the public ordeal trial. But he doesn't do either because Joseph undergoes a reformation when God speaks to him directly through an angel. Verse 20, pick it up where we left off. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet See, quote from Isaiah here, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her. But he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. This is obedience right here. The angel says, marry, marry, and he does. Name him Jesus, and he does. He follows through with his, with his marriage vows, stage two. He brings on the wedding ceremony. And by the way, try to, try to forget that you know this story. You've heard it many, many times. This is supposed to hit us as a complete shock. Think about what you know of humans, what you know of yourself. And you will realize that Joseph's response here is incredibly rare. What we expect to read is Joseph saying, this isn't fair. I have my own life to live, right? That's what we expect. Or, or maybe because he trusts Yahweh, we anticipate some kind of compromise statement from Joseph like, okay, I'll, I'll do this, but only for a while. I'm not going to have my whole life upended because God chose to bring some surprise child into the world. That's what we expect to read. That would be the normal response. Even from most God followers, that would be the normal response. But Joseph trusts God fully, and he obeys fully. God says the child is of the Holy Spirit, not conceived immorally. By the way, key in on that spirit idea. The main issue in this text is God the Spirit. But, but listen, once again, I'd like you to just try to forget. Just try to forget all you know about the Holy Spirit as revealed in the New Testament and indwelling Christians. Think like a classical era Jew, okay? Think about the Spirit from a Jewish perspective as Joseph would have understood this revelation. There are four things this revelation would have meant to Joseph. First, the Holy Spirit of God is who brought God's truth to humans. The Spirit is who inspired prophets. He, he taught through Scripture. Always the Spirit teaches through Scripture. Therefore, the very clear implication is this child, Jesus, he's going to be the truth bringer. That, that means Joseph would have understood what Dr. Barclay learned 1,900 years later when he wrote, So then Jesus is the one person who brings God's truth to men. 
Jesus is the one person who can tell us what God is like, what God means us to be. Jesus came to tell us the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. That is what conceived of the Spirit meant to Joseph. Secondly, it indicated that at least some people would be enabled to to recognize this truth. Now, the doctrine of illumination is not fully revealed until the New Testament, but the idea begins in the Old. People are blinded by sin. People are blinded by ignorance. And only the Holy Spirit working through God's Word can open their eyes. You know what that means? That means Jesus is the very Word of God. He's from the Spirit. That means He will enable people to see truth. Third thing, the Spirit means that Jesus is the Creator. You know, the Hebrew Scriptures deeply connect the Holy Spirit in the work of creation. You can see it all through your Bible. Here's just a few example Scriptures. This means Jesus, as Colossians will tell us in the New Testament, is fully God the creator of everything. Fourth, the Holy Spirit is the agent of recreation. You may have uh, read or heard about the the amazing scene in Babylon where, where Ezekiel has the vision of the dry bones. And they are put back to life. The, the ankle bone's connected to the leg bone. The leg bone. Mine's not connecting anymore. Anyway, they, uh, but you, you, you get the idea, right? And, um, and, and who is it that does that? Who's the agent bringing life back to the dead bones? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agent of recreation. So when conceived of the Spirit, from the Spirit, that doesn't mean this is just miraculous. That means that this Jesus is going to be the restorer of life, the, re- the recreator. Now, now look at this. This child will be the agent of recreation. Jesus is the creator. Jesus will enable people to see truth. He is the truth bringer. All of that, all of that is is what is involved in in the idea that, that Jesus is of the Spirit. That explains a very popular rabbi saying in the first century, by the way, that fourth one. Uh, It says, God says to Israel, in this world, by the way, I've seen this in many, many writings in the first century. It was a very popular stating. In this world, my spirit has put wisdom in you, but in the future, my spirit will make you live again. Got it? That's what's meant when the angel says he is of the spirit or from the spirit. Joseph must have been astounded at that verbiage. Now, two other linguistic bombs are dropped in this text. The angel declares this is all a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7. I would love to talk about that now, but we're not going to because we're going to examine that in depth in a few days. Just keep that in mind. Put it on the back burner. The other shocker is when God says to name the baby Jesus, which the obedient Joseph does. It's a really fun wordplay in Hebrew. Basically, it says, you shall call his name Yeshua, for it is he that shall yashia his people from their sins. It's a cute little wordplay that Hebrew people loved. By the way, that's another dynamic we're going to cover more in depth in a few days. For now, just notice this. Joseph does exactly what God commands. Man, I pray that is true of us. Which, by the way, is why I chose this objective for the series. The the objective, what what we hope to see God achieve in us through this series. Uh, Read it with me all together, the objective. That we are obedient and faithful. Amen. In 1886, 1886, D.L. Moody was leading a series of evangelistic meetings in Massachusetts. His friend Ira Sankey was uh, his music director, and Ira Sankey was really impressed with this one young man. One night during the meetings, they had a testimony time, and one young man stood up and he said, I don't understand it all, but I am going to trust and I am going to obey. 
Sankey was just really moved by that. In fact, that night he sat down in his hotel room and he, he wrote a letter about it and he sent the letter to his good friend, uh, John Samus, who was a Presbyterian pastor. He had just recently uh, joined the faculty of Bi what we now call Biola uh, University in Los Angeles. Samus was a, was a poem writer. He loved writing poetry. And Samus was also moved by what Sankey told him. So he sat down and he wrote a poem around the testimony. It begins this way. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Now, Sankey, the musician, liked that so much when Samus sent him back the poem, Sankey put it to music. And a number of you probably grew up singing. How many of you grew up singing Trust and Obey? You know the song. Okay, well, then, then you've got to sing it with me right now. Just this part. Here we go. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Now that's going to be in your head all day. <laughs> Um, great job. Here's the point. Here's the point. There are few people whom trust and obey describe better than Joseph. That, that's Joseph right there. And that needs to be us. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Our other lessons in this series are going to expand on this, on Joseph's beautiful, powerful trust and obedience. To make certain that we get full benefit from those studies... I want us to spend a moment on the normal course of Galilean family life, okay? This is cultural background. Um, it's really going to help us through the whole series. If you absolutely hate history, take a nap for five minutes and we'll get you back. Okay, let's start cultural family life. Let's start with a, a newborn child. A child's weaning occurred uh, before two years, usually quite a bit before two years. Now, like every part of Jewish life, the rabbis had rules about this, right? And the rabbi's rule was that you had to, the absolute latest moment to wean a child was two years old. Now, when you're reading on this, you may bump into some that show children being weaned later. Here's why. Many, many years later, after Jesus' life and death and resurrection, there was a new rule passed uh, by the rabbis in which they said that a child could be, uh, could be breastfed as late as five years, but only if said the rabbis, that child had only ever had mother's milk, nothing else for the whole five years to the point where you wean them. I've read these treatises. I cannot figure out what's behind them. They don't really seem to make sense culturally. All I can figure is La Leche League had a really strong rabbinic lobby. I don't, it's just fascinating. Anyway, after weaning and a few years at home, every child attended school. School was held in the synagogue. You do know that the Hebrews practice the first ever compulsory public education. All of you who are educators, and I know many of you are, you, you, you owe a debt of gratitude to your forefathers, the Hebrews. They began the idea of what we think of as education. Now, here's how their education flowed. Uh, every child, every child, male or female, discussed devotional scriptures at home with their parents. It was a natural part of life. It was a fabric of family life, especially around meals. At five years old, a really strong student, a really bright kid, could begin uh, Bet Sefer, elementary school. Every child had to start elementary school by seven. Instruction, by the way, you know what they started studying? They started in Leviticus, which we think, what? But, but think about it. Here's why. Leviticus is all about ritual purity and how to build a community. You want to raise healthy people? You want to have a good community? 
You start in Leviticus. It makes sense. Uh, anybody here attend a religious or parochial or Christian or, or madras? Anybody attend a religious type school? Raise your hand if you attended one of those as a kid. Okay, you may have memories like this of Sister Mary Elephant uh, beating you with a ruler. Um, fascinatingly, that is absolutely nothing like the Jewish synagogue school. Think about this. Rabbis were carefully chosen, and only the most patient and talented teachers were allowed to, to have school posts. It was a big honor to have a school post, and only the best got them. From the letters we have, and we have a lot of letters from the first century, the, the teaching rabbis appear to have been really beloved by their students. They taught their students through outdoor activities, uh, memorizing Scripture as they walked around outside, Everything was about scripture memory. Then there was some wider reading. There was, uh, there was writing. They worked on writing and apparently a little bit of arithmetic. As near as we can tell, nearly every kid loved school, even the ones who weren't good at it. That doesn't mean there weren't rules. Here were the main policies of the first century Galilean school. The rabbi was called the king of the school. He held kingship over the school. Uh, the students would stand until the rabbi invited them to sit. A student could not leave without his permission. Uh, everybody stood when the rabbi entered and when the rabbi left. The teacher, this is interesting, is only called rabbi, never by a name by students, only rabbi. Keep that in mind as you get into Jesus' ministry. The school met seven days a week, except for harvest periods throughout the year. There were a number of harvest seasons in Israel. Uh, and on Shabbat, they did meet on Sunday. On Shabbat, they didn't get any new information. They just reviewed everything they had learned during that week. Speaking of Shabbat, uh, over 100 years ago, uh, a writer named Alfred Edersheim, a, a German scholar, he pointed out something that really moves me. Every time I read this, it moves me. Look what he says. One might assume that synagogue as the place of worship would be considered more important or more sacred than the schools. But this was not the case. To this day, the Bet Midrash, which we'll get to in a moment, is given more prominence than the synagogue, not because education is valued more highly than worship, but because Judaism does not make a distinction between the two. Indeed, Judaism has always held that study of Torah, that's the first five books of your Bible, is one of the highest forms of worship. Study of Torah is one of the highest forms of worship. Hmm. When a student turns 10... He or she could enter that bet midrash, that's, that's secondary school. That's where older students and some adults uh, studied Torah and learned rabbinic traditions. Now, at 12 or 13, this is a critical moment, a student was considered subject to the commandments. Um, it, that means it was an age of accountability for everything they had been learning. At that point, nearly every student uh, went to work. They, they, would, they would only attend school on occasion. Uh, work was usually an apprenticeship. Now, if you apprenticed with your father's profession, then you would stay home. Girls would stay home. Uh, most guys would stay home until, they were eight, until you were about 18. Uh, usually, it's about 18 the apprenticeship was finished. If you apprenticed with somebody else, then they were responsible for your, for your care and your provision until you turned 18. At 18, you were considered uh, almost always at 18. The apprenticeship was over, and the young man uh, could become a part owner of a business. At 30, he was considered a person of full strength. That's the phrase the rabbis used, a person of full strength. There were some things that were only available to you at 30. A priest, for example, could not serve as a priest until he turned 30. What age was Jesus when he began his ministry, everybody? He was 30. Now you see why. Now, back up a little bit. At 13, 
a few, and I mean only a few, truly outstanding students left home. They didn't go apprentice for any career. They went and followed a famous rabbi. And it was a very peripatetic life. They, they literally walked around following the rabbi, living life together with the rabbi. This was considered very prestigious. Young men could apply for this position. They were never invited to do it. They had to apply for it, which makes Jesus' invitations fascinating. Um, the Hebrew method actually was similar to what you read in, in Plato about the Greek method. The difference was the Greeks, as they walked around with their philosopher, they only worked on logic. Not so with the Jews. They worked on logic through Scripture. Scripture lived out and logically applied to life. It was a much deeper education. Uh, sometimes men over 18 would apply to go follow a rabbi around and learn. When a man over 18 did so, he could not keep his business. So he either found somebody to run his business, which happened in families, or he would sell his business and then go follow the rabbi. Speaking of family and adventures, let's look briefly at the special circumstances of Joseph and Mary's life. They had to raise a really precocious child. You know, some of my friends have been tasked with raising precocious children. Uh, however bright and uh, delightful your kids are, most of us don't have to raise truly different kids, and that's wonderful. But some do. Some people get to rear what the world calls uh, severely disabled kids. Others get to shepherd almost supernaturally gifted artists or, or athletes. There, there are some others who are cursed, I, I mean blessed, with raising really, really intelligent children. Uh, sorry, that was Freudian, slipped out there. But no one, no one, however many challenges you have in your home, no one ever had to face what Joseph and Mary experienced. They had to raise God the Son. Joseph had to be stepfather to a boy who was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And from everything we can tell, he embraced that job. That's why I love the art that Jose put together for our logo. In case you haven't figured it out, this is the face of Joseph right here. And this is the newborn baby boy. Isn't that tender and precious? Now, what do we do today when we have the burden uh, and the blessing of parenting a very gifted child. Some of you know how difficult it is to parent a very gifted child. How do you achieve that job? I asked a few of you, some really great parents I, I polled, and I said, what do you do? How do you raise these precocious kids? And these were the answers I received. I asked five families. I got six answers. We rely on other parents, youth leaders, antacids, grandparents, schools, and God. Those are pretty good. That last one in particular is where we can learn much from Jesus' family. You see, Jesus, fully human, was blessed to learn directly from God the Father. 500 years before his birth, Isaiah prophesied exactly how this would, how this would occur. Look, Isaiah 50, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are instructed to know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me each morning. He awakens my ear to listen like those being instructed. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn back. I gave my back to those who beat me, and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I have not been humiliated. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. This is special training that came directly from God. Jesus, the human boy, had direct instruction from God the Father. Now, before we delve into that, I want you to take just a moment and apply this to our children and our grandchildren, our nieces and our nephews. 
the most important thing. Look at that. The most important thing you can do is teach a child how to engage directly with God the Father through His Word. Your input is not the most important. And neither is that expensive coach or that special experience. Those things are fine. But the number one factor, you want to raise kids of grit? You want to raise people for success? Train the child to follow God's words. All God's people said? Now, regarding the special child-rearing issues here from Joseph's perspective, listen again to Dr. Fruchtenbaum. This is brilliant. Morning by morning, God the Father awakened his son and took him aside to disciple him, to train him, to teach him who he is and what his mission was to be. Yeshua is a unique individual. He is the God-man. He is only one person, but he has two distinct natures, a divine nature and a human nature. While in his deity, he is omniscient. In his humanity, he had to undergo the same type of learning the experience that all humans have to undergo. God the Father did that by waking him up morning by morning to train him in matters concerning his person, his message, and his work. Even when he realized his mission included suffering and death, he was not rebellious. When the time came for him to fulfill his mission, he gave his back to the smiters. He gave his cheeks to them that plucked his beard and did not cover his face from the spittle being spat upon him. He set his face like a flint. By the way, Luke quotes that word for word on purpose. Luke quotes that he set his face like flint. Now you know why he says that. He set his face like a flint to fulfill his mission. As a result of this training by God the Father, at the age of 12, Yeshua knew exactly who he was, the Son of God. He also knew the scriptures so well that he was able to debate them with the scholars in the temple compound. Close quote. Regarding that journey to Jerusalem and that debate, it's another scene we'll mine in depth later in this series. For now, please just catch this. Joseph and Mary, look up here at the map if you would. Joseph and Mary did lots of traveling with Jesus, including the traveling to the temple with him many times, including when he was 12. Even Though God the Father trained Jesus the Son, His human parents took Him on many, many journeys. These journeys were designed to protect Him. They were designed to develop Him. They were designed to train Him. And they sacrificed to do this. Look, Joseph, that flight to Egypt to keep Jesus alive that you know about, that, that, Joseph surrendered his steady work. He gave up his career advancement. Both parents surrendered family relationships. They gave up their reputation. The bottom line is their whole lives were built around being great parents to the God-man king. And that takes us to two huge application questions. Number one, will I submit to the triune God? Put it this way, will I trust and obey? Never fear, only trust and obey. Will I? Second question, will I accept the calling of living with my everything pointing to Messiah. That's what Joseph did when he married Mary. It's what Mary did in response to Gabriel. It's what they both achieved in the normal and the extraordinary aspects of raising their son. They obeyed. They submitted to God. And they accepted the incredible counterintuitive fullness of a life where everything is not about self. Every part of life was changed to point to Messiah. Same challenge is placed before you, every one of us. Will we accept it? Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. That we will live lives that point to Messiah. It can be difficult this time of year. It can be um, 
hard with all the great things and the difficult things that are part of a Western holiday season. I pray you will use us like real Christmas lights that we will shine our light on Messiah Jesus, that we will, we will be such people that it is impossible around us just through the natural work of your Spirit through us. It is impossible not to recognize the Christ of Christmas. I see the ushers coming forward. I want to praise you for the offering. Where my, where my treasure is, there my heart is also. It is so powerful for me to give money to your church. It is a reminder that everything's not about me. It is about your Messiah and growing people up in it. We praise you. We thank you for this opportunity to give. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take our offering. Please make sure if you're visiting that you fill out the visitor card. Uh, there's a prayer card on the back of it. Fill that out. Drop it in the offering plate or the box at the back if you miss the plate. And Pastor Jared Coe has an awesome announcement for us while we take the offering. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Jared Coe. I'm the high school director here at Crystal Bible Church. And earlier this spring, Pastor Lynn made an announcement of a possible trip to Israel and Jordan. And I have the pleasure of announcing this morning that we've been part of work of this and we're going. So I want to invite you to join me September 12th through the 24th. We're going to go to the plains of Moab to Petra. To, we're going to go swim in the Dead Sea, which I heard it's impossible to actually be submerged for any length of time. I'm really looking forward to that, and I challenge you to try it with me. Uh, we're going to go to Galilee and Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane and experience going with a company called DTI. They do a phenomenal job preparing things and setting things up for us. We have incredible guides who will be taking us through explaining a lot of the history of the area and what we've seen, and at the same time, reflectively looking at things and experiencing the words of Scripture while we are there. And unfortunately, Pastor Wayne won't be able to join us physically because of the timing of the trip. However, we are working still engage and teach us. And so everyone will be able to download videos beforehand before we leave and then we'll watch those videos of Pastor Wayne's teaching for a certain number of the sites throughout the trip that we go and see. And so you may wonder about this backpack. This, yeah. everybody who goes on the trip gets a backpack loaded down with the stuff that we need because DTI does their absolute best to make sure that everything is simple so that we can go and not worry about anything, but we can experience the words of Scripture in real life as we go and learn and study together. So I would encourage you to join me on this trip. There is an information throughout the kiosk on your left as you exit the worship center this morning. Please stop by, sign up for the interest meeting, and grab one of these pages that have the details and itinerary for the trip. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. Amen. Oh, it is amazing. Scripture becomes truly, truly alive. The, um, by the way, Jared, I'm, if I'm going to spend about 100 hours uh, recording all those videos and teaching all the sites again, I tell, 
tell Ron at GTI I want a backpack. I, uh, <laughs> I only have three of them. I need another one. I would, uh, uh, they're really cool. They have, they have a camelback in them, a very nice, which is good, because September is still pretty warm. Um, they've got a flashlight, so when you're going through the different tunnels, there's a lot of places where we go underground when we teach there, and uh, you'll want your flashlight. My favorite thing probably, though, is Ronnie is going to get to, Ronan, my, my favorite guide there, is going to teach uh, the Israel part of your trip, of our trip. And, uh, and Naeem, my favorite Jordanian guide, is going to teach the Jordanian part. So you've got brilliant guides. But Ronnie wears a different T-shirt every day. And they all have hilarious Israeli-related things on them. Do you remember his Phyllis? My favorite one was the one he wore to Masada. We were, we were going through some areas that uh, we weren't stopping there, but we were going through some areas in the bus that weren't uh, places you go. They're not quite as safe. And Ronnie is, is somewhat overweight, and he wore this T-shirt that said, fat people are harder to kidnap. It was my favorite one. It was absolutely genius. Um, prayer team, why don't you come forward, please? <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, prayer team, come forward. You guys stand up if you would. Let me, let me pronounce a blessing on us, and you can come join the leg bands and pray with them about anything. How hard you are to kidnap. Whatever you want to pray with them about, they will pray with you. Now may you and I go in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by his grace, may our lives point to Messiah, because that makes all the difference. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, folks. See you next week.